Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his work in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. What causes quarrels and what causes fight among you? Is it not this that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive, because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enemy with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he's made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourself, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands and you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourself before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. Thank you, Wanda. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Lord, uh, thank you for this time. Thank you for uh, the chance to be in worship together. Thank you for uh, our kids. Thank you for the music. Thank you for the band. Uh, and their willingness to lead us. God, we're, we're amazed uh, at your grace. We're amazed that you continue uh, to show kindness to us. God, we, we admit we, we know we don't deserve it. We don't deserve uh, this chance. We don't deserve the chance to be gathered here. And so, God, it's a privilege and one we don't want to take lightly. Lord, use your word today uh, to convict us, to shape us, to help us to see you, to see our sin, and to see your greatness that overcomes even our sin. Lord, be at work even now. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. I want to start uh, this morning with a brief, a brief survey. So I don't do this often. I'm going to get you to raise your hand. Uh, if, if ever in your entire life there has been a time where you've been in an argument, will you raise your hand? I thought I could get everybody to raise their hand. That's pretty good. I, I was guessing that every single person who's lived uh, long enough to be able to talk <laughs> or whatever. We, we argue and we argue a lot. Now, you don't have to raise your hand on this, but uh, think for a minute. Has there ever been, I don't know, an entire year that you've gone without having an argument? Probably not. Maybe a, have you been a whole month, a whole, a whole week without having an argument? I, I know some people, I'm pretty convinced they've never been a day without, without an argument. Maybe that's where you are. We, we like to argue uh, we know people who can argue with a wall. Uh, we know who people who can argue over anything and everything. I see that tendency in myself sometimes over certain things that I, I could argue just about anything and pick, pick a side on it and debate about it just for fun. Um, but surely we've all faced that. Conflicts, arguments, fights, disagreements, 
in some form or fashion, small, big, large, otherwise. And that may be at work with your coworkers. It may be with your family, with your neighbors. It may be anybody and everybody. You could just about pick a fight with anybody that you want to. We could find something to disagree about. Of course, the, the greatest platform currently for, for arguing is all things social media. If you want to have a real good argument, just post something online and then respond to that comment and keep responding. And it just really bears a lot of fruits and changes people's lives and has meaning and purpose in the world. And it's just a good thing. No, of course, that, that never, never goes quite like, like we want it to. We, we, as people, I think, are no strangers to conflict. We, we see conflict in all kinds of ways. And we may have different personalities. Uh, some of I, I, Sometimes I'm kind of conflict averse. I, I kind of run from things that makes us uncomfortable. So other times we, we kind of run into conflict. We, we pick battles maybe that sometimes we didn't even need to battle. So I think conflicts are probably just, the, the, just par for the course. We got, we got sinful people. It's the air we breathe. We're going to run into conflicts. The question is, how do we handle it? How do we handle the con- conflicts we face? Are we able to work through it and resolve it? Or does it just escalate? Do our conflicts just escalate and get harder and harsher? As we turn to the end of James 3, as we've been going through this, and now then coming into the first part of James chapter 4, that James is addressing something beyond just kind of your everyday run-of-the-mill, you know, slightly different preference. When we read James 4, 1, he says, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? So the words he uses here are quarreling, and fighting. So these are, these are strong words about the level of disagreement that he's seeing among Christians that he's writing to. And he's writing, at, to, as, as these Christians, he's writing to them that, that they have escalated their disagreements into a, a full-fledged fledged fight of some kind. They, they, we, don't, we don't know exactly what the, how, how violent it was, so to speak, probably just verbal. But it is, it is a, 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 something he's calling not just a conflict, but a fight. Well, what, what are they fighting about? Well, if you look at this verse, starting chapter 3, verse 13, and you go all the way down to chapter 4, verse 10 or 12, and read the paragraph before and the paragraph after, you realize he doesn't say. <laughs> he doesn't say what they're fighting about. We, we don't get the, the nitty-gritty details of what exactly it was that has led to uh, this conflict. And I think, I, you know, I never know, we don't know the mind of God, and God, of course, has Millions of purposes beyond what we know. But I think one of the reasons sometimes God omits the specific details of a certain conflict or certain issue is that he and his great providence knew that James's arguments, conflicts he was addressing are different than ours. But what he says about how we handle it applies in both cases. So he's taking this from 2,000 years ago. 2,000 years ago, there was fighting. There was conflicts. There were arguments. And he's digging into how do we handle that in the same way that that God prescribed 2,000 years ago is the same truth he has for us today. The specifics may be different, but how it speaks into our lives is the same. It is encouraging to me, I don't know about you, but it's encouraging to me when I turn to the Bible and find things that are things we face all the time. Something as as simple and common and human as how we argue and, and how we disagree with one another. That is a very human thing, and the Bible speaks very clearly to it. You got conflicts? Yep. So did they 2,000 years ago. So do we today. How, how do we handle it? How do we handle it? Especially this is written to how we handle it in here. I don't mean just in this room, but among this group of people. How do you handle conflicts when it's your own brother or sister in the Lord that you're disagreeing with. And we have been very blessed here at Infinity. 
we are a, a, a very peaceful group of people. This is an incredibly uh, amiable, uh, loving group of people. But I, I will not presume that we will never be tempted to have major disagreements or that even now there are things that I, I maybe even don't know about. There could be certain pop pockets or things that come up. And so we want to be prepared and we want to be listening. How do we handle conflicts? It's wise for us, it, it, for us to evaluate our own hearts. And maybe you, you don't see it necessarily in this room unless it's the person on your own row because you fight more at home than you do at church. But, but who, what's your, where's the state of your heart? What is it when it comes to a disagreement, are we willing to evaluate our hearts about what's going on? James very wisely doesn't spend a lot of time on the surface level details. He digs to the cause, digs to the root. Chapter 4, verse 1, he says, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you. He wants to get to the, to the underneath. What's underneath it? What's, what's the thing fueling the fights that you're facing? The fights may be different. The conflicts may be different. But the fuel, he wants to get to the root of it so we can pull that out. So that's, that's what, what we're going to start with. We want to start with diagnosing the problem. And if we see the problem, then we'll be able to move to a solution. And then we'll end with the motivation. So problem, solution, and motivation. That's where I want to take you today. So here's, here's the heart level issue that I think that, that we see in James. He's calling us to be godly peacemakers, not worldly troublemakers. Be godly peacemakers, not worldly troublemakers. When it comes to disagreements and conflicts, James is telling us really there's just two, two categories of people. Either you're a part of the problem or you're a part of the solution. Which ones are going to be? When, the conflict, when a conflict happens, are you going to make it better or worse? Are you a peacemaker or a troublemaker? These, this uh, con, this uh, category that I'm, I'm describing as a worldly troublemaker. Again, we don't get the details about what they're fighting about. Instead, he focuses on their character. So often, that's where the Bible goes, isn't it? It's about our character. And so one way he describes them is that they have worldly passions. Chapter 4, verse 1, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? The word here used for passion is where we get our word hedonism or hedonist. To, to, to be a hedonist is to seek after uh, sinful worldly pleasures as your, your primary thing. So that's, that's what he's talking about here. Passions here is not like I'm passionate about you know, rock and roll or something. or passionate about uh, sharing the gospel. That's not the passion he's talking about here. He's talking about the, the, the desires of the flesh. Seeking after your own sinful desires. Worldly passions is one of the top driving focuses in your life, the thing that gets you out of bed in the morning, the thing that, that motivates your decisions, is it seeking to fulfill your own pleasure? Is it seeking after things of the flesh, things that you want that are, are physical and tangible in the world? Are you seeking after lust or materialism or something else, some kind of material gain like that? That's what he's talking about. Is that what's driving you? And if so, it's going to drive you to butt heads with other people. It's going to lead to conflict. If we're living for our own sinful, self-indulgent passions and hedonism, it is a dangerous place to be. If the personal pleasure is your goal, it's going to lead to strife. This is what he saw. It's what James saw. Verse 2, you desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. Now, it is possible that he meant literally murdering here, but probably what he means is the same thing he learned from Jesus, his older brother, he seems to quote Jesus a lot. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount says, You've heard that it was said, you shall not murder. 
But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother is liable to judgment. So he's talking about here, people are so desiring to fulfill their own pleasures of the flesh that they're willing to hate their brother or sister to get the thing they want. They're, they're so envious of it. They say, you're in my way and I hate you because you're stopping me from getting what I want. That desire is leading to hate, which is against the way Christ has called us to live. Christians, James is saying, don't, don't you realize how serious this is? If the, if the desires that you have in you are leading you to hate your brother, that is a, a major conflict, a major going against the way God has called us to live. I wonder if we can be honest about how many times that the, the things that we get frustrated about are really we just didn't, we didn't get our way. I didn't get what I wanted. It's not that I, it's not that I, some kind of holy reason for being, no, it's just that I didn't get what I wanted. And so we get frustrated. James sees a pretty closely related uh, way of describing it. Chapter 3, verse 14, going up a few verses. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false with the truth. Same wording used in chapter 3, verse 16. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. So I think these things are pretty closely related. Seeking after your personal passions, desires of the flesh, and being selfish. That, that's what's motivating these people to being troublemakers. That's seeking after the things of the world and they're putting me first. Dave Moore used to, used to warn us about the, the unholy trinity of me, myself, and I, right? Well, that's what we put first so often in our lives. <clears throat> we put ourselves first. You know who's not first? Our neighbor. We're not loving our neighbor well for always putting ourselves first. Worldly passions, selfish ambition. If that's the motive of our life, if that's what's driving us, pursuing what I want, me first, I'm going to do my stuff first, it's going to lead to conflict with our neighbors. I like that he says this, this phrase here, says, there will be disorder. There will be disorder. As a parent of three small children, I know disorder. <laughs> I know chaos. Uh, Amber and I all the time get frustrated because it's like we just step in the restroom just to brush our teeth, and in that amount of time, the kids somehow... Uh, we have a like partially enclosed attic that we call a playroom. And they can take every toy in there and cover it where you can't see the, the carpet at all. Oh, yeah. I mean, like the entire thing. Then, then they can somehow, in this short amount of time, they can go to their room and pull out all the dress-up clothes and everything else. And you can't see the floor or the bed. It's, it's all over. They come downstairs and they, they've got, they pull the Legos out and they throw them. I mean, play with them all across the dining room table. And you're stepping all over them. Then they went to the living room. And they've got candy, and they pull out all these blankets to watch TV, and they've got you know chocolate smeared in the couch, and you're like, it was like 30 seconds. I had my back turned. How did this happen? The kids can be like this little tornado that spins to every corner of the house and just makes disorder everywhere. And as I thought about this description of troublemakers, that's a pretty good image of what they, of what happens in, in relationship-wise. If, people, if we are driven by our selfish passions, our own desires of the flesh, we, we run around to certain people and we're like a tornado. And we stir things up over here and we stir things up over there. We go to work, we make those people mad. We make somebody mad on the road on the way home. We're, we're driven by me, myself, and I. And we are this tornado bouncing around everywhere we go and just causing disorder and chaos in all these places. Worldly troublemakers. Disorder and chaos. There's one verse that I think captures the, the severity and the gravity of how evil 
this is to be, to be this kind of worldly minded. Chapter 3, verse 15. This is not the wisdom that comes from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. Lest we think this is just a, a light and, and oh, it's just a little problem. You need to like, be nicer to people. I say, no, you're, you are driven by following the devil. This is demonic to, to, to cause chaos and discord and disharmony, to, to separate people, to, to be uh, ruining people's relationships, to be dividing people. This is demonic. This is following after the devil. This is no small matter. This is no small matter. He gets to our, to our pride, to our selfishness, to being judgmental. Chapter 4, 10, 11 talks about being judgmental toward other people. He says, this, if you're going to be that way, you are following the devil. You are not following the Lord. That kind of sincerity and directness is what we've come to appreciate about James, right? This is a pastor who's loving his people enough to tell them the truth and to tell them in a straightforward way. He wants people to know the truth. If you're going to be a, a, a person that's following your own desires and passions of the flesh and leading to discord, you're not following the Lord. All along, we've noted that James is about working faith, faith that goes to work. If you have true faith in God, it's going to show up in your life. And so he warns us here, if you are following the, the devil and leading to all kinds of trouble, he says, your, your faith is not working. So you have to wonder, is there faith? Is there faith if it's, if it's leading to these kind of sinful actions? Go back to the heart. See the root of it. Is there true faith there? The realm of conflict, like the realm of our tongue or any other way that James has spoken, he wants us to evaluate our heart, evaluate what's going on in us. Is our heart truly following the Lord? Are we following the devil? James does a good job of, of painting how evil the worldly way is. As he mixes these verses all together, he also does a really beautiful job of painting a picture of what the alternative is. We're not called to be worldly troublemakers. We're called to be godly peacemakers. James 1, uh, 3.18 is just so poetic. I love this. He says, A harvest of righteousness is sown in peace, by those who make peace. So a troublemaker is that, that tornado that goes from every relationship and stirs things up and gets people all chaos and angry and fighting each other. But here's this picture of somebody who is a peacemaker. They are a, a, a person of peace. And what do they do? They go around sowing peace. So I, I picture this person. He's got a, a basket. He is a, a peaceful person. And he's got a basket full of seeds. And those seeds are peace. And in every relationship this person goes, they, they go and they, they sow a seed of peace with this person by speaking a word of encouragement to build them up. And then they go and they, they've got their basket and they take a seed and they, they sow a seed of peace with this person by being a, a listening ear and willing to hear somebody out even though they've got a disagreement. And then they go to this group of people and they've got a, a whole handful of seeds that they sow peace into these relationships by being willing to mediate a, a conflict and be able to work through things with a, a cool and level head. Everywhere they go, they're sowing peace. They're not stirring up chaos and building people against one another. They're putting a seed of peace everywhere they go. And you know what happens? You know what grows out of that seed? Verse 18 says, a harvest. You would think of peace, but he says a harvest of righteousness, holiness, being made to be like Christ himself, being conformed to the image of Christ. Christ calls us to be peacemakers like Christ himself was. We are raising up a, a, a generation, a fellowship, 
a group of people who are more and more like Christ when we sow seeds of peace instead of stirring up conflict and strife with one another. True holiness, godliness, Christ-likeness comes from that kind of root, that kind of seed that's planted in us, and it bears much fruit. Chapter 3, verse 13, Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. True, true wisdom, true godly wisdom isn't just about knowing information or facts or, or having all kinds of uh, you know, data in your mind. It's about knowing God enough that it translates into the way you act, which is what James has been saying all along. And somebody who is godly is a peacemaker, and they display meekness. Matthew 5, 5, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Meekness is not a synonym for being steamrolled. Meekness, humility, is talking about people who, instead of being defensive and, and, and trying to constantly uh, defend their own identity for their own self-assurance and pride. Instead, they are, are willing to, to know because God's in control, because He, he made us His children, we can rest in that. And we say, I don't, I don't need to defend myself. I can, I can come into this situation with humility and love and care for the other person. Meekness is that kind of humility, to love other people. And when that happens, it bears fruit. Verse 17, but the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable. I mean, this is just such an attractive list. Pure, peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. That, wow. What, if you were described that way, if, if your coworker said, let me, let me tell you how, what I think of you. Peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy, and good fruits, impartial and sincere. What a compliment that would be. If your spouse described you that way, if your children grow up and describe you that way, so let me tell you about my dad. Let me tell you about my mom. Peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy, good fruits, impartial and sincere. Wow. It comes from being somebody who's been walking with Christ. Looks like Christ. Maybe of, of all that list, purity, holiness, this is, this is being made to be like Christ. The one maybe that's, that's uh, lacking so much in our world. Open to reason, right? How many people, when you have a discussion, do we feel like we're really open to reason? We've got our minds made up before we even enter a conversation. We're not open to reason. We're willing to listen. We're willing to talk. And then so many things, these things James has been talking about all the way through. Mercy, that's religion that our Lord our God accepts and pure and faultless is this. It's to look after orphans and widows in their distress. That is mercy, caring for those who need it. Impartial, not showing favoritism to somebody just because they have more money not caring more about one person than another, sincere, not hypocritical. This is the picture James has been painting all the way through the book of James. Peacemaker is someone who is, who is willing to make peace even when things are hard. Somebody's pointed out to me before that Jesus did not say, blessed are the peacekeepers, but blessed are the peacemakers. A peacekeeper shows up in a situation after things are already tense and just tries to to try to keep the peace. You know, how, how can we make a ceasefire here? But a peacemaker is willing to walk, intentionally go into a hardship. So I, I know there's conflict here. I'm not afraid of the conflict. I'm going to go into it, actively seeking out a way to bring peace. Not reluctantly, but willing to actively pursue harmony. And it'd be so easy for us to read this far in the passage and say, you know what? I got it. Don't cause trouble. Just be peaceful. 
it's not really that important. Yeah, there's that demonic thing, but if I forget about that, if I just cover over that part, you know, I, this is not a big deal. I, I can do it. But he gets to how serious this is and continues to, to, to raise the bar for us to realize how important it is when we get to James 4.4. So many times he has called this people, this people he's writing to, brothers and sisters. I didn't count, but it's, it's dozens of times in James. He says, brothers, my dear brothers, brothers and sisters. We get to chapter 4, verse 4. <clears throat> he's got a different name for us. You adulterous people. Okay, James, you got our attention now. This must be serious. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. If we are pursuing, if, if, if in our relationships we are stirring up strife, we are full of pride, we're full of our own personal desires, and we are not sowing peace, he says, you are, are rejecting God himself. You are committing spiritual adultery. And Caitlin read one reference for us out of Isaiah, all the way through the Old Testament, this image of we are the people of God who've been married to God. We, he is our husband. We are his bride. Our relationship is a covenant like a marriage is a covenant. And when we forsake God and pursue other things, it's like committing adultery. It's like we have walked away from our spouse. We are no longer faithful to him. And so we are cheating on God. Discord, disharmony, causing fights and quarrels is no small thing. It is turning our back on God because we are being friends with the world, not friends with God. He says you can't have it both ways. You can't have one foot in the world and one foot with God. That would be like standing in the middle of a drawbridge with one foot on one side and one on the other. It may look okay for a little while, but eventually the, the bridge is going to raise and you either got to decide one way or the other or you're going to fall. You can't, you can't stay in the middle forever. Chapter 4, verse 8, purify your, your hearts, you double-minded. It's the same word used in James 1, 8. Uh, James seems to have made this word up because it's not anywhere else. It's, it's like double-souled, literally. You, you, got, you got your heart in two places. You've got a divided heart. You're trying to keep one foot in the world and one foot with God. You're dividing your heart, and it's not working. The bridge is going to get raised, and you've got to pick. Are you friends with the world? If so, then you're enemies with God. Or you can be friends with God. If so, you're enemies with the world. Which way is it going to be? You, can know, you can't continue in spiritual adultery. Either you follow God or you don't. Either you're with God or you're not. Who's your enemy? Who's your friend? Are you stirring up strife? Are you, are you a, a tornado conflict, conflict tornado? Are you friends with the devil? Or are you so in peace? Are you friends with God? Are you pursuing love with your neighbor? We want to be people of peace. We want to get rid of the selfish desires. We want to leave the ways of the world and pursue the ways of God. That's the diagnosis. So what's the response? James 4, 7 to 10. Maybe some argue the climax of the whole book. What an incredible picture here. And I'd summarize it this way. Repent with mournful humility. Repent with mournful humility. James has been painting this very clear picture through the book of James that you cannot be a Christian and continue in the ways of the world. You, your faith has to go to work. What God's done in you will show up. And if we're honest, all of us know, it's not showing up in our lives like, we, like it should. Our, the faith that we claim, if we claim to be a Christian, it doesn't show up like it should. So that's why James paints for us a picture here of repentance. 
repentance. It starts with being humble. He quotes Proverbs 3, uh, 34 in James 4, 6. He says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Can, can you be humble enough? Can we be humble enough people to recognize we don't have it all together? That we're not following God like we should. That we do not have a heart solely devoted. We are trying to straddle the bridge. Can we be humble enough to admit the places where we keep stepping back over into the world and we're not following God with a whole heart? And if we can admit that, if we can start there, then that means we're teachable. That means that God can shape us, that God can begin to work in our lives. And if you can admit that, then God's grace is here for you. God's grace is here. One of the greatest keys to following Jesus as a Christian with true faith is to have eyes to see our own sin. Can you see your own sin? Or are you living blind to it? Are you living blind to the ways that we're following the things of the world? So many times our sin is like having something stuck in our own teeth. It's literally right under our nose. And yet we can't see it until we walk in front of a mirror and we say, oh, I, I, it's right here and I didn't even know it. Didn't know it. We're blind to it. We've got to let the Word of God be our mirror to point out our sin, our selfishness, our, our desire for the things of the world, our pride. And if we can see it in the mirror, then we've got to be willing to get it out, which is repentance, turning away from that way of living. Chapter 4, verse 7, submit yourself, before, submit yourself therefore to God. Once we see our sin, once we see the thing in the mirror, then the question is, who way are we going to follow? Are we going to take it out or we want to leave it there? Do we want to continue following our own heart, our own pride? Or do we say, God, whatever you say, that goes. Somebody who, who's on the, on the God side says, that's, that's where I want to be. I'm submitting myself to God. If we refuse to keep following the ways of the devil, resist the devil, and instead draw near to God, clinging to God. A heart of repentance is one that says, I need him. I, I'm clinging to God. I'm holding fast to him. I'm I'm begging to see Him better. I'm begging to know Him better. I'm begging to know His Word better. I'm fervent and frequent in prayer. Somebody who's, who's truly repented is somebody who's constantly coming to God, not the things of the world. Verse 8, cleanse your hands, you sinners. I want to be clean. I want to get rid of the filth. So many times the world is drawing us to dirty, a dirty lifestyle. So no, I'm going to cleanse my hands. I want to wash my hands. I want to leave that way and instead follow the purity that God has for us. Purify your hearts, verse 8, you double-minded. I don't want to be divided anymore. I don't want to be standing in the middle. I want to be following God. I want to be on God's side of the bridge. And then here, verse 9, this continuing the description of our repentance and our true turning to God. When we really mean it, this is what we hear. This is what's going on in our hearts. Verse 9, be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. That verse out of context sounds really confusing. Like, are Christians just supposed to be crying all the time? Christians can't laugh? What, is, what do you mean, James? Well, just reading in the paragraph, you realize he's talking about repentance. When we see our sin, if we are just happy-go-lucky about our sin and just smiling, do we really mean it from the heart? Do we really mean it? Do we, are we truly repentant? And I'll tell you who's the world's worst at this. It's me. My wife is in the room. I can't, can't deny this. I will throw out a quick, I'm sorry, with no heart feeling at all. Oh, I'm sorry. And just try to move on. And, and you've, you've all received I'm sorry like that before from somebody. And you're like, ah, they didn't mean it. They didn't mean it. When, when we are truly repentant, we sound a lot more like James 4, 9. Wretched, mourning, weeping. Our, our joy has turned to sorrow. Our joy has turned to gloom. 
we recognize the, the depth of our sin. We see the pain it causes. And we're not just happy-go-lucky about it. We're truly repentant, not flippant. flippant. It grieves our hearts. We truly are mournful over our sin. The key condition of our heart that we're teachable, again, he says it twice here, the beginning of the section, the end. Or verse 6, he says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And then uh, 7, 8, resist the devil. He will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. The devil, the devil flees. This is, this is a, a powerful promise. If we were truly repentant, then, then we can rest on this promise. The devil has no power over you. If you've ever been bullied by somebody and you think, ah, they keep telling me to do this, I keep being stuck with them. God's saying, the devil is not a bully. Just tell him to stop, and he doesn't have power over you. Flee from him, and he can't, he can't keep you anymore. Flee the devil. Draw near to God. God says, God will draw near to you. God will draw to you. What an incredible gift. What an incredible gift. The problem is that we're called to be peacemakers, but we're troublemakers. The solution is that we, we are called to repentance with humility. But there's one more key passage, this, this, uh, one more key part of this passage I want you to see. And of all that I've studied in James, there's been a few things that have just really grabbed me. This is one. This is one. In five, chapter 4, verse 5 and 6, one of the, uh, this is what we read uh, verse 5. Uh, he says, He yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace. He gives more grace. I want you to hear the good news of the gospel today. We are all drawn to, to, to pride, to selfishness, to lust, to, to all kinds of desires. And we're, we know the solution is repentance. And yet, if, if, if our hearts are just motivated by trying to just work really hard on our own, it's never going to happen. But I want you to hear this picture of God's very nature, of His character. And I want you to hear the good news, that God yearns jealously for you. He yearns for you with jealousy and grace. He yearns for you with jealousy and grace. The word He used here for yearning is, is this affectionate, tender desire. When you think of the way God thinks about you, what, what would you use to describe Him? He, he's, how would you think if God, you think about how God thinks of you? Is he, is he indifferent? Is He disappointed in you? Is He frustrated with you? Is He, is he a little angry with you? Here, here's a description for you. God yearns for you. God is longing for you. And He's longing for you like a father who's been missing his son. Jesus tells a parable that we know is the parable of the prodigal sons. Two, two sons there, but it's a parable about a man who had two sons. And the youngest one came to his father and said, Father, give me the share of the inheritance that is coming to me. And the father gives it to him and he goes off into a faraway country. And it says that he, he, gives, he uses all that he has. He expends all that he has in lavish living until he has nothing left. And he's starving and he goes out to feed pigs and says he's longing to be fed with the pods the pigs ate. And he decides, he thinks about his father and he thinks about all his father has done, all he has. He says, my father's hired servants have more than I do. I'll return to my father. And in Luke 15, 20, it says he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And when he got there to the father, said, I demand everything that you lost paid back to me with 10% interest. He said, no, no, no. He said, he turned to his servants and he says, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. 
For this my son, my son who I love, my son was dead and is alive again, was lost and now is found. And they began to celebrate. That is a picture of a father who yearns lovingly, jealously for his child to return home. When we see our sin as it truly is, it should grieve us. It is painful. But we should look to God and recognize His mercy is waiting for us if we'll just come home. He yearns for you. He yearns for you. True love is a jealous love. We, we hear that word and we think uh, jealousy is a bad thing. Of course, it can be in all kinds of ways. But over and over again, the Old Testament's description of God is that he, true, true love is somebody who cares if the love is not reciprocated. What, what husband would say, I, I don't care whether my wife comes home or goes somewhere else tonight. No, I'm, we are jealous for our spouse to come home. God is jealous for us. He, he wants us to come to Him, not run to something else, not go some of the things of the world. He wants us to come home. He is jealous for us to come home. Why? Because He has put His Spirit inside of us. He yearns jealously over the Spirit that He's made to dwell in us. God, if you are a Christian, that means you have turned from your sins, repented of your sins, and received Christ as Savior. That means the Holy Spirit, the same Spirit who raised Christ from the dead, is dwelling inside of you. And Jesus is looking at us, the Father's looking at us and saying, I put my Spirit in you. I know you're better than this. I know you're better than chasing after the things of the world, pursuing the desires of your flesh. You are better than this. Come home. Come home. Come and be with me. And then you hear in verse 6, He gives more grace. Or as Paul says it in Romans 5.20, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. There is a temptation sometimes in our sinfulness to say, this time I've gone too far. I've out God's grace. I know He loved me last time, but this is the 104th time, and at 103, I know He was done with me. And so I have out God's grace. I can't go home. I can't go back to Him again because I've done it too many times. I've been here too many times. You need to hear James 4, 6. You need to hear He gives more grace. You will not get a point to your, in your life where you have out God's grace. You can't do it. You can't have more sin in your life than Jesus paid for on the cross. You can't do it. It's impossible. Come to the Father, and He says, He gives more grace. He gives more grace. God yearns for you with jealousy and with grace. Our closing song is a joyful celebration of that truth. We're going to sing in a moment, What love could remember, no wrongs we have done. Omniscient, all-knowing, He counts not their sum. I want you to hear that God knows everything and yet doesn't count all your sins against you. Instead, thrown into a sea without bottom or shore. Your, your sins are like a rock that God says, okay, I see it, and He drops it into the ocean that has no bottom. That sin is going to continue to go further and further away. And the, the ocean doesn't have a shore that's going to some, someday that sin's going to wash back up and you're going to have to relive your sin because it came back out. No, He drops it into a sea without bottom or shore. What patience could wait as we constantly roam? What father so tender is calling us home? I think as the Gettys wrote that, they had, they had the prodigal in mind, didn't they? He's patient, waiting. What an incredible love that he continued to wait. The prodigal's father did not run out of patience. 
He kept waiting and waiting. God, isn't he too holy for that though? Isn't he too righteous for that kind of sin to continue? How can he be this way? We're going to sing, What riches of kindness he lavished on us. His blood was the payment. His life was the cost. We stood neath a debt we could never afford. How is, how is God able to love us this way? It's because he paid for it himself by dying on the cross in your place, which is why we can sing loudly with celebration, with rejoicing. Praise the Lord. His mercy is more. Stronger than darkness and new every morn. Our sins, they are many. Oh, they are many. Oh, our sins are so, so many. But His mercy is more. Let's pray.